0: and welcome to So What You're Saying Is, I'm Peter Whittle. Now in ten days time we're going to see the next much anticipated, much delayed Bond film, No Time To Die. So I'm delighted that uh, this week uh, my guest is a man who's written what I think is probably the definitive book on Bond. It's called The World of James Bond. Uh, it is Professor Jeremy Black. Uh, Jeremy is Emeritus Professor of History at the University of Exeter. He's written on military history, political history, social history, and indeed I think he is the world record holder in terms of numbers of books he's written, which is now over 180. He's been on the channel before, I'm pleased to say, and he's back with us now. Thank you very much, uh, Jeremy, uh, for joining us.
1: Excellent to see you, Peter, and delighted to be back.
0: Oh, great. Well, first things first, uh, with the Bond film, will you go and see it?
1: Oh, definitely. I give regular lectures on James Bond. I will always see it. And I also love, I also take part in a, a sort of thing that goes out in America where people debate films against each other. So I'll obviously, having seen it, then take part in a debate about its merits vis-a-vis another earlier Bond, whichever one we do. So this week I'm doing Theatre of Blood, Vincent Price, against another Vincent Price. (laughs) It's great fun to look at how Bond films change. For me, I don't know what the new film's going to be like, For me, um, one of the big changes compared to the early Bond films is the early Bond films were less violent than the modern ones. So in the modern ones, you have a larger number of people killed and um, you generally have less dialogue. um, So that, for example, if you think of Goldfinger, there's a very long sequence in which James Bond plays golf with Ulrich Goldfinger. There's no fighting. The only violence is at the very end when Oddjob Goldfinger, sidekick crushes a, a golf ball in his hand. And essentially what you're doing is creating character. You're trying to get both of them to say what they're like as people and they're verbally jousting with each other. And that kind of thing has changed and there's a number of ways of looking at it. You could be critical and you could say this is ridiculous. It's simplified. There isn't so much wit in it. And all of that would be true. But on the other hand, what you've got to remember about James Bond is James Bond is a global product. Yeah, this is the world's most successful film franchise. It's an amazing achievement, if you like. Uh, For Britain and an image of Britain, James Bond with Winston Churchill and Her Majesty the Queen are the most famous Brits of the last century. And the point is this, that when James Bond film started, and the very first film was Dr. No, the very first feature-length film, there'd been an earlier um, one-hour thing, but the very first feature-length film was Dr. No in 1962. At that stage, uh, the United States was, as it still is, the world's leading film market, but Britain was the number two. And essentially, most of the listeners, most of the viewers, would have been people who knew English, knew English relatively well. Now, at the present moment, uh, a large chunk of the market, and this has been true true for over 20 years, are people for whom English is not their first language. And as a result, I think you have more of an emphasis on action. And the other real change, I think, is that in the 2000s, a rival franchise turned up in the shape of the Bourne films, the Jason Bourne films. And they had a very different filmic quality, very different filmic character, much more action orientated, far fewer words spoken by either the uh, central character or anybody else. And and they were quite successful. And in a way, James Bond got repurposed with the Daniel Craig figure, to be more of a action hero and less of, as it were, a old-fashioned
0: spy. Yes, I, I, that's a very good uh, point there uh, about J- Jason Bourne. I mean, I, I was going to ask you, actually, when you say they got sort of re- well, no, not reimagined, but refashioned um, be- because of all the different new influences, uh, I think one of the most important things, Jeremy, I don't know whether you would agree with this, is that something which had sort of appeared to have slipped into parody um, was made serious again. I'm thinking of Casino Royale in uh, 2005. This is the second one. And if you think of Daniel Craig, the the tone is quite serious. It's taking Bond seriously. I mean, from my point of view, that hugely improved it. But what, what do you feel about that?
1: Well, I think the start of that film was excellent. So, for example, the physicality of killing somebody by holding them down into a, in a sink, you know, the fight yeah. at the very beginning. I think that was really impressive. You, and you get the sense, you got the sense from the outset with Daniel Craig, and you still get do get the sense that he can kill you. I mean, Sean Connery had that sense. I don't think anybody had any sense that Roger Moore would kill you. You know, might well tell you that your flies were undone, but certainly wouldn't kill you. So Daniel Craig, I think, came across as a killer. And that was impressive. Where I think that particular film had a weakness is it went on for a very long time. And the actual plot became quite confusing. And you really had to concentrate towards the end. And the other thing is that you notice with some of the modern films is when they run short of something, they have another action sequence. Now there's nothing inherently wrong with that. It's not that there is a perfect form of James Bond. I think the good thing with Craig is you can believe he's a killer. The good thing about him is that it actually does look at the issue uh, which you first got in the Brosnan films, but it does look at the at the issue of traitors within the service, yeah. and obviously uh, that had always been a problem in real life with the service from the nine, early and uh, known to be from the early fifties onwards, and it had been rather odd in the sixties and seventies and eighties that you didn't see that. So the idea of a traitor within, um, which you get with Golden Eye onwards, and uh, it, you know it, it is impressive. Um, yeah. I think some of the modern films are a bit too long. I think yeah. that actually a pared-down film can be much tougher and can engage you, have you, as it were, come out of the theatre, film theatre in a sense of almost shock, you know, yeah. you've, you know that with your adrenaline having run at a very high rate. And that's not a bad thing. Um, yes. the, obviously, they've got some elements which are much harder for them to do now. The love interest element Mm -hmm. is very difficult to do now. I mean, it was very important in the novels. It was very important in the early films. It helped to make those films, as it were, a cultural product that reached out very broadly. I mean, you know, famously so with Goldfinger, for example, Um, or even the very first full-length film, which was Dr. No, Ursula Andrews coming out of the sea, you know, like a Botticelli figure, and being, what's it, Honey Child Rider was the name of the character. That was, in a sense, an, an an erotic attempt. And there was a Steptoe and Son episode in which that came forward. But that was not the case Uh, with the more modern ones. Nowadays, I mean, James Bond is a serial monogamist.
0: Yeah. Although actually interesting, I I, I was reading an article that you've written uh, some time ago, actually, Jeremy, about this. And you you made the point that even though he's, I think it's in GoldenEye where there's that famous scene where Judy Dench calls him a sexist dinosaur, I believe. That's right. Um, yes. And but but you you actually said he was quite liberated in his attitude to women. That the the actual character, as written by Ian Fleming, liked women who were sexually aggressive and and enjoyed it and all of that. Is that correct?
1: Oh, that's absolutely correct. Totally correct. I mean, if you go back to it and remember the first novel comes out in 1953, so you're in the ninety, the early 1950s, which is a more straight, at least in public, a more straight-laced decade than what's come subsequently. And what you have, which is really interesting, is women who are not defined by a wish for either matrimony or motherhood. So there are women who are quite happy to have sex with Bond, either then, you know, they have, as it were, a relationship, or that's part and parcel of them trying to kill him um you know (laughs) so so in other words they are independent agents in their own mind um and that i think is a very important figure now what happens subsequently is the feminists came along and actually poured you know sort of manure over james bond but in the, it, as it started you got some really quite powerful characters so although she may have a silly name pussy galore is a woman who is uh, in the novel she runs a lesbian motorcycle gang based in new york in the film i mean they downplay and take that side out of it though they still hint at the lesbianism But the point is, she's an independent character. She's able to run her own little air air force. You know, she's able to do things in her own right. And you go that right the way through. So by the 1990s, you've got uh, agents like the agent played by Halle Berry or the agent played by Michelle Yeoh, who are killers in their own right. You know, they're working for friendly secret services but these secret services aren't there to give you a tissue and discuss how your husband's nasty to you. They're there to actually kill people just as James Bond is there to kill people. Um, So there is no of this kind of reducing women to sort of figures in the background who are not not impressive. And I think that's an important element to think about. Um, And again, octopussy has a ludicrous name. But you remember the actual plot of the film. The short story is very different. But in the film, um, Octopussy is running a criminal network. You know, she is an eff- efficient and effective figure. And again, I think these these points need to be remembered.
0: Do you know? Uh, apparently, on YouTube, um, there's a, a clip. There's a scene in Goldfinger with Pussy Galore, played by Honor Blackman. Of course, where it's sort of suggested that uh, Bond has kind of managed to turn her uh, against her will. Uh, this now gets an 18 certificate apparently on YouTube. I suppose it's being politically incorrect or whatever. Um, but it it is a fascinating point because this is one of the great sort of obsessions about Bond now, isn't it? I mean, it's saying you, you can't have the women, you can't have this, you can't have that. Um, therefore, is he in fact even still Bond? And I wanted to ask you actually, you know, I mean, what is the actual description of Bond, or a few of the descriptions of Bond in the novels? How are we introduced to him? I mean, you know, you, you can tell us what is he, physically what is he. Uh, well, first I always understand.
1: The first thing to bear in mind about Bond, which is different in the novels to the films, yeah. is in the novels, he's, as it were, a, in the old-fashioned sense of the word, word, a dark romantic hero. So in other words, he's troubled. He kills people, but he's troubled about killing people. He several times thinks of leaving the service. Um, he has a problem uh, with um, breakdowns, In the last novel of all, he tries to kill M, having been turned by the Soviets. Um, You know, he's a much more complex figure. The novels are worth reading. And one of the novels, The Spy Who Loved Me, is actually told from the perspective of the woman. It's a very accomplished piece of writing. I mean, people tend to forget this about Fleming. He wasn't a particularly wonderful man, but he was a bloody good writer. And he, of course, wrote not just the James Bond stories. He wrote Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, of course. He wrote a whole series of um, travel pieces. Um, He wrote part of the background for the man from UNCLE. You know, he he was a talented writer in the public and popular field. And I think the way in which now people in 2021 are criticising somebody who was writing in the 1950s and early 60s, he died in 64, is a bit silly and childish. It's rather as if in 60 years time, let's say in 60 years time, people think in their own infinite wisdom, I'm being sarcastic there, that either we should never eat meat and therefore everybody in this generation is terrible, or that people themselves are the fundamental cause of climate warm uh, change, and therefore everybody over 60, that would include me, ought to be given a pill and sent off to die. And they might think our generation is absurd and our novels and films are absurd because they don't have those values. Now, the problem with the politically correct today is they do not understand that human society is constantly in a period of change and process of change. And you've got to be very careful before assuming that the value you like today is of infinite importance, which outranges everything else that you could have achieved. Mm -hmm. Um, So Bond itself is actually a hero. He's a hero because he is defending, and Fleming very much has this view, he is defending good against bad. Now, if you look at the very first novel, which is Casino Royale, Bond in that novel is unsure whether he should be sticking with the service. He's not sure whether he's doing the right thing. What happens is, as you may know, um, um, he gets, in a way, betrayed uh, by the girl he's with, who is being um, manipulated by the fact that her, I think it's her husband, um, is held prisoner by the communists in Poland and is being tortured to, in order to ensure her compliance. And at the very end of the novel, and she kills herself, um, at the very end of the novel, There is a line, the bitch is dead. Very powerful line, which um, Bond delivers. Now, one way of looking at that is to say, well, he's just talking about a woman and he's being very harsh. That's a very stupid way to look at it. What he's really saying is, my doubts are ended. I know now clearly that I am up against bad. And remember, if you look at the um, biography that Fleming gives Bond in his novels, Bond had acquired his double-O status by killing people earlier. He'd taken part in World War II against the Axis. Um, He then takes part in the Cold War. There is a clear sense of good against bad. Now, one of the great tragedies of those people who talk about political correctness today is they have no such moral compass. Many of them, as we know, hate our country. Um, but the thing that is even more serious is they have no sense whatsoever of how we compare to other countries that are hostile towards us. And, you know, Fleming creates Bond as a figure of the Cold War. But the early novels, he's up against Smirsch. Um, in From Russia With Love, real um, Soviet agents are named. You know, You know, Fleming knows what he's talking about. Now, we clearly, when we're looking at the modern films, do not have that background. So they are looking to create different kinds of modern villains, whatever they are going to be busy doing. Um, But that's not how James Bond started. James Bond started as a hero figure for a country that was in the front line of the Cold War and was having to defend itself. And was having to defend itself precisely because it was a Cold War, was having to defend itself by the Secret Service as much as or more than troops deployed.
0: Um, Did Fleming like the films? If he died in 1964, he would have seen how many, Jeremy, about two or three?
1: Yes, he was. I mean, I discuss this in my books. Uh, He had mixed views, I think it's fair to say. Um, He would have preferred somebody other than Sean Connery to play the role. He was interested in David Niven playing the role. There was a lot of discussion as to whether Cary Grant should play the role. Uh, Sean Connery was not him. Uh, And that's fine. But one of the things, if you're an author uh, of books, is you have to be very careful to not assume that you're going to control future versions of things. So let me give you an example. I've got a book coming out later this year on, uh, called The Importance of Being Poirot, which is about Agatha Christie. Now, as right. you will know, the modern... Um, Agatha Christie films, the ones that have come out in the last six years, have got absolutely nothing to do with um, Agatha Christie novels. I mean, if you look at the one, for example, on the ABC murders, you know, or um, 10 Little Indians, uh, as it's now called, or then there were none, as the Americans call it, these are totally different to the novels. And one way to look at that would be to say, this is awful. And I personally don't like it. I don't think they should call them Agatha Christie's um, ABC murders. I think they should call them the ABC murders based on an idea by Agatha Christie. And we know Agatha Christie was very cross about the first play um, that they uh, staged of one of her novels um and you know she had her views she had very clear views that some of the uh, stage versions and some of the film versions were better than others had Fleming lived longer and he died relatively young uh, I mean he was a heavy drinker heavy smoker uh at lots of rich foods so he you know he's dead by 56 um had he died uh had he lived longer had he lived as long as Agatha Christie did I think he would probably have been quite dyspeptic about them but that's That's not essentially proving that the films are wrong, because films are trying to do something else. Um, And, you know, you can look at the plots. Sometimes the plot changes are to make the film more relevant. So in Goldfinger, the novel, it's the Soviets who are trying, who provide the atomic weapon in goldfinger the film it's the chinese and that's because america at that stage is getting involved in uh, southeast asia you know growing commitment to the vietnam war it's a different culture or in um oh moonraker in moonraker the uh the novel it's the soviets in alliance with neo-nazis who are trying to land a, a rocket with an atomic warhead on London. In Moonraker, the film, it's Hugo Drax and has who has global plots to end human life on the Earth and create a new lot of superheroes. Um, now you might say, if you were the author, this is ridiculous, or you might say, if you're, we don't know what James, uh, what Ian Fleming would have made of Moonraker, because he didn't see it, obviously. Um, but he might have said, well, this is an interesting way to keep it alive, to keep the idea alive, to look into a new technology, because Moonraker, it's the new technology of space shuttles, none of which were, uh, were possible, obviously. Um, for, uh, for Fleming to write about. So I'm not sure I necessarily am worried about that. What I'm more interested in is, and I think all of us should be interested in Peter, everybody who's listening, does a film work? Does it yes. work as a coherent film in which you're interested in what happens, you are excited and you remain committed to the end, end moment and that your afterglow, it's like a meal, is the afterglow good? Now, what really then can make a film work even better, and there are, you know, I mean, it works for me, most of them, not absolutely every single one, is do you want to see this a second time, a third time, a fourth time? And you can see that with other films. So, for example, LA Confidential. I know exactly what's going to happen in LA Confidential. I've seen it. Um, but, you know, the second time I saw it, I thought this was fantastic. Whereas the same actor, um, playing the lead role in The Usual Suspects, it didn't work for me when I saw it in the mm. second time. Mm. And that's because the first time was a better constructed film. So partly yes. is how does the film work for you as a first time? How does it work for you as a second time? And one of the interesting things about the Bond films is that the filmic quality of settings, adventure, special effects, um, music music is very important in the bond films are usually for most audiences will take them through to want to watch it more than once and that is crucially important star wars has that for its audience as well and as you may know the other leading contender for film franchise and it varies depending upon who's brought out a film last is star wars so it's star wars and it's the james bond uh, films; those are the yes. two leading film franchises, and they work not just through very big global audiences times one, but for a lot of people watching them times two or three or four. Yes,
0: um, I think one of the things one of the things you alluded to there actually I think is interesting. Uh, uh, James Bond, you know, for quite a few years was a, a product of the Cold War, was very much in that context, as you say. Um, and the villains, therefore, were in that context. But uh, what we have now are just villains who, in, in some ways, are just sort of plucked out of thin air, you know, as being kind of evil. In, in other words, who would, in if one were going to be political, who would Bond be fighting against now? I mean, you know, it's, if it were no longer the Soviet Union, would it, for example, could it be modern-day Russia? Could it be... Islamic fundamentalism. What you know, do, do, you, do you see my point? I mean, he's, the, the the villains now are sort of almost, they're just kind of villainous people,
1: you know? Yes, and they and to my mind, that doesn't work as well. Yeah. So, you yeah. know, terrible, no doubt, for Bolivia to run out of water, which was the plot of one of the Daniel Craig <laughs> ones. But I can't say that many or much of the audience was gripped. Um, the Blood Diamonds <laughs> character, very unpleasant in casino royale but again it doesn't really it didn't grit to the same extent one of the interesting things about um some of the uh bond films though during the cold war is some of them were very much against the other side but some of them had megalomaniacs in them i mean drax we've already mentioned in moonraker stromberg in the um In the uh, man who, uh, in the spy who loved me, he wants to end all human life so he can rule from beneath the seas. Um, Or my favourite film of all, which is Diamonds Are Forever, where you have Charles Gray as Blofeld. This is 1971. I mean, he he is intent on, um, you know, uh, as it were, destroying everybody so that he can ransom destroying all their military force so he can hold them to ransom from his space mounted laser. And you know, you get, uh, I mean, I think that's a very, the reason I like that film um, is Charles Grey is a brilliant villain. Sean Connery is on good form. It is a funny film. It is the funniest Um, You know, I mean, it's not like the first Casino Royale, which is terribly bad and only funny in this respect. There is generally witty lines. I mean, characters like Morton Slumber, The Undertaker, and, you know, smuggling smuggling, uh, diamonds in a duodenum and this kind of thing. It is a funny film, Um, but in some ways, the psychopaths then were more convincing than the psychopaths now. They were more interesting. Today, to set a real live villain is extraordinarily difficult in a world in which you're producing a global product where you are worried about all these wokes out there who will say, I mean, if your villain, you mentioned Islamic fundamentalists, you can imagine the fuss that you would get uh, from woke critics if that was your villain. Um, you can imagine, even though, as we know, Al Qaeda was a terrible and terrifying, you know, network of terrorists. And if somebody had been able to destroy it early, it would have been a jolly good thing. The fact of mm-hmm. the matter is, if you produced an adventure film showing that or depicting that in the late '90s, everybody would have said, "Oh, this is awful. This is encouraging hatred to, you know, Muslims, etc." It's not encouraging hatred to Muslims at all encouraging hatred of terrorists. But Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm afraid the trouble is that woke critics don't tend to go for those sort of distinctions. So you've got a problem. The only villains these days that are allowed, of course, Peter, bad news is you and me. Yes, the only nothing. villains that are allowed, yeah, I mean, yeah. woke British people hate our country so much, they'd have us as villains or maybe, oh, you know, yes. maybe the royal family under some bunker mm. in Balmoral trying to yes. bring the world to a close. But that would yes. probably go well with them. You could see the Guardian saying a convincing account. Um, yes. But the, the uh, uh, we, and you know, uh, if you see a character with a cut glass accent, you know he is the villain. It would be oh, a he, yes. not a she, of course.
0: Um... <laughs> yes. Oh, no, no, absolutely. Jeremy, you mentioned Diamonds Are Forever being your favourite Bond film. So I take from that that Sean Connery is what, your favourite screen Bond? He's my favourite screen Bond. I think he's a
1: convincing as a killer. I think he has some marvellous lines and he delivered the lines wonderfully. Um, In terms of the actual novels, the Bond who is closest to the novels is Timothy Dalton. Bit introspective, bit troubled, um, and he is the one that is closest. Daniel Craig suggests himself as a killer. I think that's good. Not so good. He doesn't get given such good lines as Sean Connery. I think so. There's less dialogue there, and of course, there isn't quite the uh, frisson relationships with women that there are in the in the Connery uh, in the Connery films. Um, Roger Moore. Some of the Roger Moore films are better than most people think. Live and Let Die, for example, the very first one, is actually a pretty convincing adventure film. The sequences in New York, in the island in the Caribbean, um, fictional island, and in New Orleans and Louisiana are very good. But by the end, they were getting very tired, the Roger Moore films. And View to a Kill, which was the last one, was really poor. Um, yeah. Brosnan i think again varied i thought golden eye was a good film i thought the first half an hour of tomorrow never dies a good film uh but again i think he rapidly ran out of steam um and it, partly it's the script partly he just looked too untroubled he lo- yeah. he didn't look as though he was bra- having to break sweat yes. to kill yes. anybody you know, I mean, if you look at the scenes, the scene, and I mean, go back to the very originals, because sometimes the, the versions that are used now, particularly on television or airplanes, have been sanitized. But the scene of the fight in the lift in uh, Amsterdam in uh, Tomorrow, in uh, Diamonds of Forever, is really tough. You know, they break the glass. They're trying to cut throats with glass. This is tough stuff. The mm. fight in Goldfinger, uh, no, not Goldfinger, from Russia with love, with Robert Shaw in the train. That is a bloody tough fight. Uh, attempted garroting, um, gets the garroter by sticking a-, a knife in their shoulder. I mean, you know, we're not talking about let's shoot somebody from a distance. We're talking about blood sp- spraying in your face killing. Yeah. These are convincing. I don't think you have the same air of conviction in Brosnan, or, you know, you cannot believe that Brosnan would throttle somebody to death. You could believe that of Sean Connery or of Daniel Craig. I,
0: I think, I, yes, exactly. There's a, a threat there, isn't there? There's a, a very important, all important threat, uh, particularly when you consider how he was written, uh, Bond. Um, one of the things quite interesting as well is that. The various bonds through the time have also uh, shown us what is considered to be attractive in a man actually. And what I thought was very interesting is that there's in Casino Royale, the second one, the first Daniel Craig, uh, there's this scene now where he walks out of the water, everyone knows it, and he's very, very, you know, masterly, very buff. Um, And it was almost like a little bit of an um homage to when Ursula Anders walk, walks out of the water. But in a way, um, I think it's true to say, is it not, that it's not to say that Bond's been objectified, but audiences now maybe wouldn't take a kind of Roger Moore figure. I mean, in the sense that it wasn't about his physicality, really, was it? It was about his finesse, you know, or yes. even, or even uh, Pierce Brosnan. Same thing, sort of cocktail sophisticated, all of that. Um, But there is something much more sexual, I would say, about Daniel Craig in the way that there was with uh, Sean Connery.
1: Yes, and the language, of course, sometimes varies enormously. So if you think of Fatima Blush in Never Say Never Again, um, you know, the line about going down and this sort of thing, it's, it's playing it very close to the edge Uh, Do you remember she tries to get him to sign a form saying that, a letter saying that he was the best, that she was the best person he ever had sex with. And then he shoots her with a rather phallic pen. I don't know if you remember that scene (laughs) or um, if you think about the Pierce Brosnan scene about liking it with a twist at the end. You know, there is there were sexual references there. They've largely been removed completely Mm -hmm. from the modern Mm -hmm. thing. And, you know, nowadays, there's a kind of almost asexuality about it, that it's Mm -hmm. almost as if the Daniel Craig Bond is so troubled at times by things that have happened to him or about his angst um, that uh, he uh, really can't engage properly with women or that you have with, as with Judy Dench, the kind of buddy film in which he and Judy Dench are buddies. This is a very different approach to relationships with women. And, um, you know, you might argue uh, that it works for audiences. In fact, an interesting thing is from the word go, about a third of the audiences were women. Um, and yeah. the whatever feminists might have said a lot of women liked going to see them um so they weren't regarded as hostile to women they weren't regarded as commodifying women um well, they were by some critics of course but they weren't by the uh, the bulk of the female uh, watching public but as you correctly say we are now in a very odd place i mean to put it bluntly in historical terms, I'm not debating the rights and wrongs of it, and I don't particularly uh, uh, interested in engaging it, but a society which is so focused or has been so focused on issues such as transgender Mm -hmm. is a society that is going to find any representation of traditional male sexuality. Some people aren't going to like it well you know you cannot please all the people all the time james Mm -hmm. bond is a male action hero if they were ever to cast a female for the role it would be a female action hero action heroes tend to put themselves in positions of danger and then Mm -hmm. to use their ingenuity and force to get out of them that is not a question of sitting on the m25 because you don't like the price of butter or whatever else yeah. you might want to yeah. hold the country up for. So I think one has to be aware of the that there is a cultural mismatch between the enormous popularity of a film figure that stands for good, delivers good outcomes, and on the whole is very considerate to other people other than villains, um, yeah. And the fact that, obviously, in a woke universe, he is a villain.
0: Yes. On that point, uh, you you mentioned there about having a female Bond. Uh, I think it is testament, is not it, to Bond's extraordinary powers, cultural figure, that there is this ongoing, almost a news item: who is going to play the next Bond? Uh, you know, what would they be in a change world and all of this. I mean, what is your view, Jeremy? Do you think, for example, that we could have, say, a black bond, for example?
1: Well, I wouldn't be troubled if we had a black bond, as long as the black bond is somebody who is presented as a figure for good, representing good, and doing down villains, because that is the point of the stories. It's not in order to get you to spend your time thinking that the that Britain is a corrupt and criminal organisation. So, this yes. is about, you know, a heroic figure who helps our country, mm-hmm. Western values, and the world as a whole in the fight against evil. That's what it's yeah. about. It is deeply moral. If you look yeah. at the Fleming stories, they are deeply moral. And in fact, the villains in the Fleming stories often during world war ii had done dodgy things in other words they'd been linked to the third reich Um, and if you look again same thing with agatha christie agatha christie the point about agatha christie which uh critic i mean i saw the richard e grant program and all the rest of it completely ignores one of the central points about agatha christie she was an extremely devout religious christian there is good and bad In stories like Nemesis, she is throwing out very strongly quotations from the Bible. It is a very clear good versus evil. And of course, when you get modern filmmakers totally discarding that, what they are doing is forgetting the moral universe in which these works were written and these works were intended to be understood. Go back. I mean, I've written a book about Jane Austen. Exactly the same. Jane Austen, the daughter of a clergyman, uh, the sister of a clergyman, a woman who wrote her own prayers, very devout. You cannot understand Jane Austen unless you understand her as a devout Anglican.
0: Yes, I think I see. I, I absolutely see that. I, I take the point about the good uh, versus evil. I think the thing is with. Bond, you mentioned there a bit earlier, and you also mentioned Timothy Dalton, uh, as basically being, you know, he's this dark uh, uh, romantic hero, Uh, he's a public school boy, he's always been perceived, even though uh, Daniel Craig's probably been the least, sort of, as it were, upper middle class of the lot, but he's perceived as being, you know, a gentleman and all of this, Um, and he's a product of a very particular social... You know milieu uh, yes that's like fleming himself point.
1: like yeah. fleming so, himself if you look would... if you look at the descriptions of bond fleming goes into it in some detail he discusses his finances essentially mm. half of his money comes from uh his income for the secret intelligence service better know that as mi6 and the other half comes from investments from dividends He has a housekeeper. He drives in the stories of Bentley. He is a member of a number of London clubs. He knows Mm. how to do the kind of high-stakes gambling that you would get. He knows how to comport himself. He knows the first novel. He knows how to eat pate de foie gras. He is a kind of clubland hero, like the adventure heroes of the interwar years, um, who are very much gentlemen. Now, yes, James Bond, as depicted in the novels, is a gentleman, and that, Mm. in part, is uh, Fleming's understanding of intelligence when he'd served in it. In part, it's his writing about, as any good writer should do, they should coin their experience. Fleming himself not only had his intelligent links, He was a member of London Club, so when he writes about the fictional club Blades in Moonraker, he's writing about the sort of club he knows about. Um, When he writes about golf, he was a champion golfer. You know, this is the sort of thing. Now, the difficulty now is the scriptwriters are, um, as it were, not from that social background. Mm. So sometimes they get it right, sometimes they get it wrong, but more often they're just not interested. And that's not a criticism. They're trying to create a global character rather than a character located just in the British class system. And that was very important for the move from David Niven to Sean Connery. David Niven had been uh, to a public school, he'd been to Stowe, Ian Fleming had been to Eton. David Niven was, classically, had been a matinee idol as a younger man. Sean Connery was rougher edged in his background, Mm -hmm. in his acting Mm -hmm. style, in his accent. That was regarded as somebody who was going to work better for the um, American market. Ironically, you get exactly the same thing two years later. Something I've recently talked about on one of my podcasts, which is Zulu. Because in Zulu, which has an American director, they cast as the aristocratic British officer (laughs) of all people, Michael Caine. But the point (laughs) is that looks absurd to an English audience, but to an American audience, Michael Caine seemed a reasonable person to have. And so in a way, um, it was entirely reasonable from their point of view to present Sean Connery as somebody who, the uh, British Secret Intelligence Service in 1962 was still fairly public school, you know. Yes. I mean, it had people yes. like John Le Carre had gone into the Secret Service. You know, public school boys. Um, and I, in many senses, what you get uh, with Sean Connery is what, in my view, you get at exactly the same moment you get with the Len Dayton uh, uh, novels with Harry Palmer, played, of course, for film by Michael Caine again. But novels such as The Ipcris File, Funeral in Berlin, these are in some ways also very gritty. I mean, just as with Sean Connery, there's a degree of grittiness. Um, There is an even greater degree of grittiness with Michael Michael Caine as Harry Palmer. Now, in the Ipcris file, they push it further because in the Ipcris file, there is a traitor and the traitor is within the service. And in fact, spoiler alert, is um, uh, Harry Palmer's superior, played by an upper-class ex-military type. Uh, So it's very interesting the social politics that one sees there. But Len Dayton is a very different man, different background to Ian Fleming.
0: Um, Coming up to, right up to date, uh, who, have you got anyone you think would, should be the next Bond? You're obviously, you know, a film fan. You obviously know, you know, about the actors and current actors around on the scene. Jeremy, who do you think would make the best bond of the current people?
1: Well, can I just say, I wouldn't like to name an individual person, but I want to go into the parameters. I do think they should be British. I do think it should be a man. not particularly bothered about women playing adventure heroes, but James Bond is a male character. And I think it would actually be, you might as well start completely anew if you're going to cast a woman and just create a new persona. So I would go for a man. I also think it's quite important to have development through time. So i think you want a character that can play at least 12 years which means right. you should be looking now for somebody who is a relatively unknown in their mid to late
0: 20s mid to late 20s okay
1: yes so it, the the classic figures that are usually cited would only work for about three films and then they'll start to look too old too tired their bodies yeah. wouldn't look good. I mean, these days they're not allowed sex scenes, but they wouldn't look particularly convincing. And could you imagine the fuss if you had a forty-four-year-old or forty-eight-year-old actor picking up a twenty-four-year-old woman? My God, it would be the end of civilization yeah. as we knew <laughs> yeah. it. You know, um, the mm-hmm. uh, but the so I think, <laughs> but uh, and actually, funnily enough, to you and I. I mean, I'm, you know, we're not people in the first flush of youth, shall we say. It might look odd to have a young person. But given that you're trying to keep the franchise alive and relevant to young people, it's no bad thing to have a young person.
0: How how old was Connery when he started out? That on, is a on, good on. question and I cannot give you an exact
1: answer. The thing that you the line you often hear that he was an unknown is rubbish. He'd been in a number yes. of films. Um but you're right in saying that he wasn't particularly old. And interestingly enough, they looked at Roger Moore at the time, but of course he was engaged in the uh, the Templar films, you know the te- television yes, series. Simon so Templar, he was under yeah. contract um, but in each case, they were looking at younger people, and the problem they had. One of the problems with David Niven and Cary Grant. Cary Grant had done North by Northwest, but one of the problems with both of them is they were too old.
0: Yes, yes, I can see. Finally, um, Jeremy, uh, what do you think the future's going to be? Do you think, do you think it's going to hold out? I mean, uh, you know, pe- this this particular film. Well, it's not just Bond and the Bond franchise. It's also, frankly, the future of cinema going. Where it seems to be hanging on it, uh, because obviously this is going to be the biggest films come along since the pandemic and everything. Uh, do you think it's got a future? You know, for the next ten years, seems to well, me it has. Of, I mean,
1: first of all, I hope so. And speaking past you, Peter, to your audience, I would say to you, you can see many things on television. We've all got broader screen televisions than we used to but the kind of big adventure film, whether it's a James Bond film, or whether, for example, it's a Star Wars, you need to see that in the cinema, not just for the visual sides, but also for the sound experience, for the experience of being plunged into darkness, because your mobile phone isn't, or bloody well shouldn't be going on, because you are actually taken into a place where you can suspend reality, which is one of the key things about cinema. So I jolly well hope you go. And the fact of the matter is, ultimately, um, this is part of our heritage, and it is Mm. part of a living heritage. It would be an enormous pity for us, as indeed the same thing in other countries, if you get rid of a living heritage, either because you can't be bothered or because you object to it. We would all Mm. be poorer in every true sense of the word as a result of such a choice. And what I'm trying to do in my books, when I'm writing about Bond or when I'm writing about Agatha Christie, I've got another book coming out on Sherlock Holmes. What I'm trying to do Mm. is to show that there is not just that these are quaint, but actually that these are major cultural works that speak to a lot about our heritage and in broader terms to moral issues facing the world itself.
0: Well, beautifully put, Jeremy, thank you. Um, thank you very much for that. Uh, the, the book is called the, the World of James Bond by Jeremy Black. It was, uh, it's was it been completely updated, so it's available now in Waterstones and Amazon's. And uh, those places, this is the cover you can see coming up now. Um, Thank you very much for that, Jeremy. And I look forward to, well, maybe on email, uh, you know, discussing what we think of this film when we've seen it.
1: (laughs) Well, I think that would be great. And, you know, you don't necessarily get me on. But I mean, I think it would be a good thing to have people on or I'd be very happy to do it again to discuss it. Um, But I also hope that, you know, everybody at the present moment has been hit over the head psychologically about COVID. But what people need to remember is our culture is still alive. There is lots of uh, books to read. There is lots of television to see. There are many cultural forms that we should engage in, whether we're frightened or not frightened about COVID. And it's important to actually take ourselves outside our own personality and outside our own fears in order to think about the collective imagination
0: absolutely 100% thank you very very much indeed Jeremy thank you uh that's it for so what you're saying is this week we will be back next time so I do hope you join us then bye bye <laughs>